Today on The Negotiation, we talk with David Sullivan, Managing Partner at Deo Navalis Global Solutions, about winning and losing in China and what every brand needs to take care of on the home front before they make the leap into the digital middle kingdom. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Hey, everybody. So we're here with David. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Todd. Okay, so we're going to jump right into this. How long have you been in, around, or doing business with China? It's been about 10 years since I first um, you know, had a, a task given to me to sell consumer goods in China. Okay, so let's go back 10 years. Where were you at? Why did you start doing business in China? And what kind of business were you doing? I was with a company called Ergo Baby. And it was a fast-growing, family-owned startup I uh, had been going about oh, six, seven years at that point and really starting to pick up in the international markets. And of course, China was on the list of somewhere to expand to. There were no sales in China except through some just small retailers who had heard about the brand. What there was, though, was a quite uh, profitable counterfeit business going on in China. Profitable for you or? No, for the company, <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> but, they, you know, um, imitation is the, is the, you know, highest form of flattery. So I always look, I always look at that as uh, something bad, but also something good. Yeah. Okay. So how did it go? What did you start learning early on? What, what were some good stories of, you know, you said something where, you know, uh, you, you, you met somebody in Hong Kong and they just kind of looked at you sideways and just gave you that look of, oh boy, this guy. Well, I, you know, I was looking at demographics and birth rates since this was a baby product and just looking at the massive numbers and then looking at sales numbers in other key markets like Japan and Korea, Australia, and I thought, hey, if we can find the right partner in China, I think we can sell 20,000 units in the first year. And people just looked at me when I proposed this as if I had two heads. And this is when I first started to realize maybe this isn't going to be as easy as it looks. No, for sure. So let's expand on that. How did it go? What did you learn? And... Uh... How difficult was it? At the time, I was very lucky to have found a distribution company headquartered in Hong Kong run by a European woman. And so we were able to very quickly understand each other 
And of course, she had the understanding of the China market and was able to educate me about what my goals should be in going into a year one scenario in China. Okay. And so she was obviously scaling back your expectations, yeah? Yes. So basically, the goal for year one was just to get the product into the market and start doing some marketing, start doing some branding, because it became quickly apparent that we had no brand recognition whatsoever, except among a very small, very wealthy, Western educated segment of the population, which is probably 0.2%. Back then, it's grown now, back then a very tiny uh, portion of the population knew our brand, knew what our product was about. To the vast majority, the overwhelming majority, this product did not make any sense whatsoever. Okay. And, and without knowing where this story ends, because I actually don't, how did it go? Did it end well or did it end poorly and why? So it ended very well, but it took five years to come to the happy ending. It's still going, they're still doing their thing, but it really took five years of patient, slow, determined work and investment to bring that brand to a place where uh, they had were able to capture some small percentage of market share. And what were the investments in? Was was it in marketing? Was it in, in distribution channels, partnerships? You know, you say five years of investment. I mean, where were you spending it? Uh, well, the, the investment really was the distribution company was, was the one making the investment. And that was in personnel and infrastructure on the ground in China. So warehouses, sales staff, marketing staff, social media experts, engaging PR companies, engaging celebrity influencers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it was a lot of, lot of work in different areas. And, I mean, I think that one of the most important things to have the infrastructure on the ground, employing local people who knew how to work the China market. And were they employed by you? Would you suggest that they should be employed by you? Or, you know, you being the, the North American entity, uh, so to speak. Uh, should, it be, should it be run, owned, operated by the, the foreign entity, wherever they may be? At the time, it wasn't necessary. But as the years went by, that became definitely something that was a part of a conversation of many brands. Do we need to open an office in China? Do we need to go direct in China? And that's still a conversation that's very important to have. And depending on the brand, depending on the partner, you're going to have different needs. You know, for some people, it might make sense to go direct. For others, it, it might not. So in, in this example, it was the distribution partner who was given the rights, basically, to represent the brand. And they, you know, did all that work on the ground. And I basically worked with them to get them the product they need and get them the marketing messaging they need, the assets, all the support. I would go to China and train their staff on how to sell the product, how to use the product, how to market the product. So it's very close relationship, but on the ground, they were somewhat autonomous. 
Was it difficult to convince the brand to spend the resources to do that, to invest yeah. in, in, in the China market entry in that way? Yes, I think this is for all brands that we've worked with and for probably most brands. The idea of you know spending money is obviously yeah. not something that anyone sure. wants to do. <laughs> so they want to revenue. Everyone wants the revenue coming in. They don't want any revenue going out, right? Or, or operating expenses going out. So yeah, I think it, it, it's always a difficult uh, conversation with a brand to say you're not going to make any money in the beginning. You're going to spend money, but give it a few years, and that will turn around. There, there, there's that tipping point. And we hear about this. With a, there's a lot of examples of brands who you hear about. They come into China, and they spend a lot of money, and then suddenly, maybe it's year three, maybe it's year four, and the revenues just start coming, and it's almost too much demand for your product. Now, on the other side, there's also what we hear about a lot: is people going into China three, four, five years, and they end up spending billions, and then they're pulling out. In year five, year six, they just didn't mm-hmm. figure out how to do it. Uh, so we have lots of exa- lots of examples uh, both ways. So it makes it a tough selling point to say, "Hey, give it three to five. What I always say: give it three to five years, and you'll you're going to make back everything you've invested. But also, you see, you know, the companies that didn't weren't successful at that. So what can you bring to the table? that helps convince people that, hey, we have a real plan here. And I think one of the things recently that we've been able to deploy are the resources of WPIC or companies like WPIC. Okay, uh, okay. A track record and know how to do that business, especially now online. When I first started online, wasn't to the point it is now. No, of course not. Online is vast majority of the business for most brands. Some brands still, you have to go into a store, you have to see it, you have to touch it. But for most brands, online is going to be the vast majority of the business. Yes, for sure. Um, and and retail is going in a, a very interesting direction uh, in China. I don't think it has shrunk as much as, as people might have thought, but it's used for different it's not as much for purchasing anymore. It's used for, for shopping or for returns or for things like that. You're still in the baby game. So what are you doing now? So, so now we are working for a company called Lilla Baby. Okay. And when I started with them uh, about, I want to say, 18 months ago, they had a distribution partner based in Taiwan that was handling the China market for them. This particular partner also, they had offices in China. They had people on the ground in China. But the level of investment that was needed at the time really to get the brand grown correctly in China, it was not feasible or reasonable that they could put that kind of money in. It really came back to the brand owner the onus to invest really came back to the brand owner just because I think of the difficulties, especially in the last few years, really shifting heavily to digital, the expense of digital the last few years. It's very tough to get a local partner 
willing to spend the money that's needed mm. to really do that right. So it, so our plan became to employ WPIC and invest directly with them to grow that digital online marketplace uh, for uh, this brand. What are those decision metrics that go on? Because you were involved in you know, talking to the brand, going through the meetings and the discussions uh, and the discovery of, of entering China and then deciding to go go the route of, of um, you know, deploying a, a, you know, an, an agent like WPIC to handle everything. What do you base those decisions on? I think it really needs to be based on long-term goals. And again, it's a difficult spot because everyone wants a short-term return for their investment. Mm-hmm. And you really need to have owners and investors who are willing to see something through long-term. I always say for any market, not just China, but for any market in Asia, in Europe, wherever it is, it really takes three to five years to build a brand to get a good, solid foundation. And in China, I'd say it takes three to five years and significant investment on the part of the brand. And if someone does not have that patience, does not have that timeline, then it's probably not something that's going to happen. And the brand is probably not going to become popular in China. Mm -hmm. Just one exception to that, of course, if you had some massive celebrity, use your product and, and, you know, you can get lucky, of course. But luck isn't a sales plan, right? Right, right. Yeah, you, you can't ship it off to Ellen and just hopefully she loves it and talks about it on her show. And then, you know, the Chinese version of Ellen, of course. But um, have you used influencer marketing in uh, in China at all? Yes. Is it So it's a thing there too? Of course. And I know so, that it is. I'm just asking. Yeah, yeah, no. Le- leading um, you to talk about it. Yeah, in, in the beginning, um, you know, we'll go, we'll go back several years when this whole phenomenon began, people were looking towards the biggest, most famous, most number of followers, uh, influencers. And I think that worked for a while to get the celebrities and whatnot. And there was actually a lot of free exposure that people got because the whole social media environment wasn't as monetized as it is now. That was kind of fun because you'd have some really huge celebrity post a picture using your product just because they liked the product and they liked the picture and they weren't expecting anything out of it at all. Now that didn't last too long. Mm-hmm. So people realized, oh, I should be charging for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it quickly became very extremely expensive to do this kind of marketing. And there was a, a bit a, a shift of sorts maybe five years ago, I want to say, to really looking at what they call micro-influencers. So you could do a cost analysis, say, well, if I if I got one Serena Williams, you know, this would cost me this. But I could get a hundred, you know, smaller, I, I don't know wh- who would be an example, some local celebrity maybe. I could get a hundred of them for the same cost and exponentially through their following, I might even have a greater impact on my real target audience. So I could be more specific maybe 
And this is something that a lot of companies, I think, have had to do because not everyone can afford now to have all the top influencers and top celebrities showing their products and posting about their products. Extremely expensive. And on top of that, I think there's been a, a little bit of a blowback mm-hmm. of trust when you have a celebrity say, oh, this is my favorite product this day. And then, you know, a couple months later, they have a competitor and they say, this is my favorite. Um, so I think there was some erosion of trust about, are these people really telling us what's their favorite and what is great for them? Or are they just get paid to, you know, promote anything? Mm-hmm. X, Y, Z. Yeah, I I think you know the I mean the sports world has been doing it for for years where they uh, you know sponsor athletes uh, and then the movies and TV start getting into it with product promotion and placement and I think influencer uh, marketing is done very very well now very very well I I want to dig into if you have some insights some some unique perspectives and and just even to talk about some mistakes that you made that the rest of us and the listeners can learn from as far as going to China, entering China, existing in China, managing your China domain, where have you kind of taken your licks and uh, what have you learned that is specific to China and about existing in China? Yeah, I, I think I think the, num- the number one thing that comes to mind and where we start now with, with any client or any brand that might be interested in going into China, the first question now is always, do you have your trademarks in China? Do you have your patent in China? Do you have the proper IP protection? And this is a big theme that we see now in, in the so-called trade war going on between the current U.S. administration and the current Chinese administration. That's really where you can really run into a lot of trouble if you don't have that wrapped up. Hmm. And surprisingly, you know, a lot of companies and a lot of brands do not. Is it expensive? It's, I don't, I don't think it's hard if you do it at the beginning. It becomes hard when you don't do it at the beginning and enter into China and become known because there's a whole industry of people who are going to register your trademark and there's no real law against it. It's a very loose system, let's say. So if you do it up front, it's easy. If you don't do it until after you need to, it's very difficult, very expensive, and can take years mm-hmm. to claim and recover your intellectual property. I think this is the number one advice you could give to anyone wanting to do business in China who has a goal to become a popular brand, a well-known brand. Make sure you have all that wrapped up. There's a few questions I want to get to, and I do want to be cognizant of your time. Just talking about e-commerce in general, where do you think the Chinese market is moving? And you know, where's the where's the e-commerce space going to be in a few years? Too broad. If I, if I, yeah, if I knew this, uh, <laughs> I'd be really in a good position. And and like uh, you know, I I said previously, 
you know, anyone sitting in Los Angeles or, or sitting in New York or wherever saying, oh, I'm an, I'm an expert on China and they're not there. I, I'm always a little skeptical of, but okay. Sure. I mean, and you're saying that from, you know, right, right now you're, you're, you're back in LA sitting there. Uh, uh, you're, yeah, I'm sitting, you're home I'm with the windows open here and the cars go by. Um, I'm sitting, I'm sitting in Los Angeles now and for me to, for me to say, oh, I know what's going to happen in China. is just ridiculous. But uh, I mean, let, it's interesting to think about, though, and to talk about. And yeah. I, this is what's going to happen. But I imagine, you know, e-commerce will continue to grow. It will change in some way. It won't stay the same as it is now. How it will change, I can't say. We were last year in uh, Hangzhou, and we saw one of the first Alibaba retail stores. Which is uh, where Alibaba is based. Yes. Yeah. An amazing city of the, the old and the new. It's yeah. Just, it's about an it's hour and 20 really, minutes outside of Shanghai. It's just an amazing kind of symbol of what China is now. And the, the money, the transformation of a city with all that Alibaba money coming. It's just amazing. Well, when they IPO'd, they created uh, 10,000 millionaires. So Yeah. It's just an amazing, amazing place. Yeah. And they had the concept store where you, um, you know, you could go into the store and see the products there and order them online in the store at the little stations they had set up or whatnot. And now we see this also, you know, with Amazon. I was in their store in Columbus Circle in, in Manhattan last year as well. So is that going to take off, perhaps? This kind of whole concept of showrooming sort of fits in here where uh, retail stores really become showrooms for brands. And it's really you go in and you can look at products, but you're ordering them online, maybe not even in the store, maybe go home and order them online. You know, click and collect is a term we hear a lot. Um, What does that mean? So that's you, you order something online and then go pick it up at the store. Right. Right. Or you pick it up at your local 7-Eleven or, you, you know, or any of these various points throughout the area where, where you're living that, that are convenient. Amazon lockers. So all these different things are out there and it seems right now, you know, these concepts are being tested. They're kind of like the beta testing of some of these concepts. Which one is going to rise to the top? Well, it seems like all these are very interesting, but it seems to me like the most convenient thing is still, for me personally, and, and not that I love what this is doing to small businesses, but to order from Amazon and have it arrive at my door the next day or even the same day, I don't know if you can beat that. So all these other concepts, I think they'll, they'll play out and we'll see, we'll see what happens. Well, but I think definitely retail in China will really become about marketing and branding and that's not where your revenue is going to come in. That's where people will learn about your products and have an experiential moment with your products. But then they'll go home and they'll try to find the best deal online or they'll wait for a promotional period like 11-11. I think that's something we see happening. Right. 11-11 uh, being the singles day, November 11th, biggest shopping day in the world. Biggest shopping day in the world, yeah. So, yeah, it's going to be very interesting, I think, over the next couple of years to see how these different kinds of concepts play out and to see what happens to retail. There was a lot of talk last year, retail Armageddon, retail's over. Uh, yeah. Now this year, people say, hey, well, well, maybe not so fast. 
yeah. you know, it's just changing. It's, it, it's, it's, it's never going to retail is, I mean, everybody thought the TV was going to go away. It just changed. It adapted. Yeah. We use it slightly differently than we used to in the past. What is your favorite tech in China? Kind of a point blank, you know, I mean, even talking about e-commerce, what's fascinating about payment, search, purchase, yeah. you know, delivery, there's all kinds of things, but What's I think the Ali, Alipay type tech, I think, is my favorite. And just a little story: when I was in when I was in Shanghai last summer, we took uh, my wife and I. We took a food tour in Shanghai, and we went into the streets and with the street vendors and the street food, and ate amazing food that you wouldn't even know what it was or how to order it if you weren't with a guy. Right. And even my wife speaks Chinese and is from Singapore and she wouldn't know how to do that either. Mm -hmm. And it was just so amazing. You had these small street vendors and you were able to use Alipay. Just ubiquitousness of that system and how quickly it was taken up by even the smallest retailers. Yeah. I think that was really fascinating. And that you just place your phone there. You know, it's something that's slowly coming along in the U.S., transactions, the whole transaction landscape. Uh, the U.S. seems much farther behind than Asia at this point from from what I've seen. I, and I just thought that was really fascinating. The smallest street vendors, you could use Alipay, very quickly done. And there's no real, there's no, okay, here's your receipt or here's this. It's just, oh, here, I'll just scan this and we're done. Yeah. It is. It's one of the things that I, I, I still think in the reverse culture shock of coming back to North America, I'm still trying to get used to actually carrying money again. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> where do I put all this stuff and why do I need it? All right, David, thank you so much. I'm going to ask you a few more questions. Just a little bit lighter, though. What's your favorite city in China? Hangzhou. Uh, What's your favorite thing to do in China? Eat. I was going to ask the next question. And it's always it. So it's going to come to this. What is your favorite f- food to eat in China? One dish. Ah, my favorite, favorite food. Or at least one that you really love that's top of mind. Peking duck. Ah, okay. The Peking duck. Yes, it's, it's, it's a, that's a good choice. Peking duck? I, I don't know what, what's politically correct. I don't, is it, is it not political to say Peking anymore? Um, you know, it's Peking University or Tsinghua. Okay, last question. Baijiu, yay or nay? Oh, nay unless I have to. Yeah, usually it's a business requirement, though, if you're going to do business in there. And we'll get into all those other things and uh, the nuances of the the famous uh, business dinners that happen when you're doing business in China. David, David Sullivan, managing partner at Deo, Deo Navalis Global Solutions. Thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Todd. My pleasure. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at wpic.co and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.